Good morning. <clears throat> it's good to be with you this morning. Um, so we are a few weeks into a series uh, on prayer, as uh, you should know by now. Uh, and this morning uh, is, is one that I think actually sits uh, at the heart, not just of the Lord's Prayer, but I think what Scripture is uh, requiring of us um, from the front to the back. I think um, what Jesus teaches us in uh, today's uh, sermon is the heart uh, of what it means to be a Christ follower. And so this morning we're going to talk about uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Doing God's will uh, is a wonderful thing. Uh, it is a beautiful thing. It's a very good thing. Um, but uh, I, I started uh, the, <laughs> you probably know by now, uh, my uh, love for C.S. Lewis. So last night, uh, Asher and I began uh, the Chronicles of Narnia for his first time ever and mine, like, 12th time probably. And uh, there's this kind of famous phrase that, that comes uh, up later on in the story uh, when they're talking about the lion and, and the, the question gets asked, is he safe, right? And the answer is no, no, not at all. Uh, but the lion is good, right? And this morning when I think about what it means to follow God's will, uh, we could ask the same question, is it safe? And... Um, Frankly, the answer is no, uh, in a very specific sense. Uh, I think our New Testament passage this morning uh, was evidence enough that doing God's will led Christ to a very unsafe place, to the cross, but ultimately to redemption, to resurrection, and to the redemption of the world, right? And so it is good, but being in God's will is, is not always safe. This isn't necessarily, though, the direction that I want to take this sermon. It's, it's actually not a, a downer of a sermon. I think it's actually, uh, and hopefully we'll see, you can judge me afterward, but uh, it's an inspiring one uh, where God is calling us into uh, his will, his purposes, his larger picture of what he is doing uh, since uh, time immemorial and on into thy kingdom come. Before we get into it, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning, as we come to receive your word, Lord, we open our hearts to you. Lord, this very moment, we say to you collectively, thy will be done in us right now. God, we desire to live lives that are in accordance with your ways, with your desires, with your plans for each and every one of us, Lord. I pray this morning that we tune our hearts to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the psalm uh, for today was Psalm 25, 1 through 5. I'll just very quickly read through it. I think it's a wonderful way uh, to get into what's happening uh, when we submit ourselves to God's will. Uh, the psalmist writes, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And when I read this, I imagine uh, the psalmist uh, waking up early in the morning, day after day after day, 
And the psalmist saying, here you go, God. I'm lifting up myself one more day. Here I am turning myself over to you, lifting up my soul to you. And then he continues in verse 2, oh my God, in you I trust. Right? I, I, I'm handing all of this over to you. And in you I trust. Don't let me be put to shame. Now, I don't know if you would pray something like that, but the psalmist does. And you might be thinking, well, of course God wouldn't put you to shame. Would God? Right? But the psalmist seems to see fit to say, God, please. You can hear the pathos in it. You can hear the passion. God say, the psalmist saying, God, don't let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, he says, and he reiterates his faith and his trust in the Creator. He says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed, however, he says, who are wantonly treacherous. A wonderful phrase, wantonly treacherous. And then it's verse 4 and 5 that I think really encapsulates what we're doing this morning, what I hope you're doing, frankly, every day. And he says this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Within this statement is the assumption that the psalmist does not know these things, but is coming to God asking for them asking for guidance, asking for revelation, asking that he know God's ways, that he be taught God's paths. And then he concludes in verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day long. It's a beautiful psalm, and I think it makes for a a beautiful prayer. Today we pray together, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What would it mean to wake up every morning and to pray that prayer? God, today, may your kingdom come. God, and in my life, may your will be done. This is what we need to ask this morning. And I think there are indeed two sides to this, and this is where we'll start. Thy kingdom and thy will right? These are the two halves to what Jesus is teaching us this morning. Thy kingdom and thy will. And I want to start with thy kingdom. And I think what we need here is uh, to, again, uh, remind you of of C.S. Lewis. If C.S. Lewis taught me one thing, and he's taught me many things, but if there's one way in which I think he's been most influential in my life, is that he has given me a vision for what the next life can and might be. He has given me a vision for what uh, eternal things are, for the good life as it was lived in Eden, for the good life as it can be lived now, and for what it means to say, thy kingdom come. Do you know what you're praying for when you're asking for God's kingdom to come? And by the way, not just in heaven, as it says, on earth, right? On earth. Let your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. What would that mean for God's kingdom? I think one of the things that C.S. Lewis uh, points me toward is the importance of imagining God 
as uh, a God who is much like uh, the, uh, as we talked about when we talked about our Father, a, a God who loves us so dearly that he is trustworthy, that he is someone we can go to who, who delights in us and who loves us with all of his very being. When we think about heaven or we think about God's kingdom, we should then think of a place that is perfectly good. And I want you to take a moment here and try to do a thought experiment. What if we lived in a good place, the good place, heaven, the kingdom? What sorts of things come up in your mind when you think that way? How do you behave in that world? How do we relate in that world? What is that world like? What would it really mean to live in heaven? And what would it really mean to bring them into this place? How would that change us? What do we have to look forward to? When I think about thy kingdom come, um, I think myself of certain visions of the good life. I do think in terms of like, uh, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit, and I, I think of things like, like love and perfect love and, and things like joy, uh, and, and I think of peace and a perfectly patient world, right? And you could go through the list there. And I think of sitting around with friends. And I think of uh, uh, dining at the finest restaurants and enjoying life together as it was meant to be lived. I think of laughter with the ones we love. Uh, I, I think of uh, enjoying life to the full. I think of uh, participating with God uh, in, a, 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 in praise and honor and, and glorifying way, but in a way that fills us with life and happiness and goodness and all of these things that this earth was meant to be, and that sometimes we see little windows into, and then oftentimes it comes crashing in. I think the whole tenor of Scripture, from the front, Genesis 1, to the back, Revelation 22, is one big long story in which the world is created good, perfectly good. And it is meant to be lived in a good way and to enjoy beauty and life and love and happiness. And the fall happens. And the fall reminds us that sin and death are crouching at our door and scripture then is one big long narrative that goes on where God is in the redemption process, in the restoration process. He is taking this place that has fallen and he is trying to restore it to what it was meant to be. That you and I will live lives to the full. And yes, we await heaven we await the next life. We await what lies on the other side of death, yes. But I do think in this life, 
we catch glimpses of what that life should be, will be. And I think we hold on to those because it reminds us, it gives us hope of what this world was supposed to be. I came across a pastor this week who, uh, of course, tweeted this out. Um, and he said that we should stop telling unbelievers or non-believers that God loves them. I don't think this pastor thinks of God the way I think of God. I, I don't know why someone would say something like this. Because when I think of the arc of history and the arc of our Bible from front to back, I see a God who is willing to do just about everything possible because he loves this creation, both the people in it and the it itself, so much that he is willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf that he might redeem it. A God who doesn't love part of his creation wouldn't do that. When I think of who God is, I think of God as perfectly loving to all creation and created order. He loves us with everything that is within him and is doing everything within his power to bring us back. And so, yes, I do believe that God loves us and the unbelievers and the created order, and God is in the business of restoration. That is what this whole thing is about. This is what it's always been about. That is what Scripture is pointing us to from front to back. Restoration. Taking that which has fallen and restoring it to what it should always have been. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying a prayer of restoration. And we should be asking ourselves, how can I be part of that restoration? Just, just to point number two, which is thy will be done, right? Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. What is God's will? God's will is, um, another translation, is desire. What does God desire for his earth, for his creation, for us? It goes back to this restoration, right? We recognize that we are fallen creatures, and this earth is a fallen place, and that the enemy has been given territory and has held sway for too long. And so we we must submit ourselves once again to the will of God and to say, thy will, God, your restorative will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here heaven simply means the place where God is reigning and ruling in perfect order. And Jesus is teaching us and saying, we want this earth to be like it is in heaven where everything is still perfect and Lord, we know that in this place, it is not. And so when we pray, thy will be done, the context, once again, is the long arc of redemption and restoration. And so what does this mean to do God's will in this context? 
Well, it starts with me, or in your case, you. It starts with personal restoration. I am a fallen and sinful man. You need to know that about me. And believe me, I know that about you. (laughs) We all do. But God does not leave us there. We are in need of repair. It's with repentance. It starts with the recognition that I need God's saving grace in my life to pull me out of the pit that I am in and to set my feet on solid ground. But it doesn't stop with salvation. It continues with more redemption, with more restoration, by a daily act of submitting ourselves to God's will. It means sanctification, to use a big word. Turning ourselves over entirely. But the restoration isn't just about me, is it? It changes the way I view every one of you, every one of my neighbors, every person I encounter, even, Jesus says, our enemies. We are to love them all. And by the way, if Jesus calls us to love our enemies, surely God loves all those people we think are our enemies as well. In each of these cases, as I look out at you, as I look out at my neighbors, the people I encounter on the street, even my enemies, I see what? Well, at least I could see the divine image in each of them. That God has created them, created you, in the image of God. And yes, it is a fallen image. Yes, it is in restoration. That's part of what we're here for, isn't it? This is one of the ways in which you and I get called into the process of restoration through our relationships, how we treat one another, how we treat our neighbors, how we treat that person that we run into uh, on the street, right? And even, maybe especially, how we treat our enemies. And then the third thing I'd say that when we pray, thy will be done, we reclaim a mission that aligns with the mission of the whole of Scripture. If God is redeeming the world, taking away the hurt and the pain and the harm, reordering the chaos of life into an order that is beautiful, good, and true, well then, our mission is to be part of this restoration. What are you doing in the restoration? Now, I know when we talk about the will of God, there is a very personal side to all of this. And I want to address that this morning. Because when we often ask the question about God's will, we ask, how do I know what God's will is for my life, right? How can I, Eric Gilchrist, know God's will for my life? And it's an important question. It's one that I hope you're asking as well. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest for a minute and tell you something that 
I think I'm actually halfway decent at following God's will. What I often struggle with is knowing God's will. Do you know what I mean? It's not just the following. I feel like I would make a a good soldier in this way if you just give me some clear instructions, God. Right? You just tell me what to do. I'm at it. I'm I'm ready to go. And here I mean specific instructions. uh, You know? But we don't often get that, do we? And instead, we get something else. And um, I think I could have saved my own self some heartache if maybe someone had told me this a long time ago. So I want to tell it to you and, and say that when I seek God's will in life, I do believe that God can and does sometimes speak in clear ways that, that are filled with just obvious, like, here's the thing to do. And I could even point you to a few places in my life where that has happened and where I have been the beneficiary of it. And I, ha- I, I hold on to those places for my dear life, my dear spiritual life, certainly. Now, here's what I've, I've learned, especially of late, is that God, God is far more interested in our daily conversation than he is in the downloading of some data so that you can then just kind of cut off your relationship with God and go do whatever it is you think God wants you to do. God wants you coming back to God daily. And so I'd say it this way. I I want God to speak in paragraphs, but God usually speaks one word at a time. And so every morning you have to wake up And you have to say, God, what is it today? And then he says, the. (laughs) Uh, Okay. And then the next day, okay, God, today. The way. (laughs) Okay. And there are days where nothing happens. I'm just going to be frank with you. Where I will wake up and I will sit in my chair for a good half hour waiting in silence. And I don't hear anything. Am I the only one? I know I'm not. But there are other days. Because I show up daily where I hear something. Or at least I feel something. Or I know something. I know I introduced too many books to you, but I do have one more that I quite like. This book is by a guy named Richard Foster, who, um, for me, has been uh, somebody who has taught me more about Jesus than almost anybody else that I can think of. He is, um, this book is called The Sanctuary of the Soul. And it is, um, it is about meditative prayer. <clears throat> and he says a lot of, of really wise things in here about having a, a life uh, where you are seeking God in, in the stillness uh, and in the quiet. And he says that, um, 
there is actually a way to, to know God's will. It just takes a few things. One, it takes time. And two, it takes silence. We don't like either of those, if we're being honest, right? Uh, we, don't, we want it now. Uh, and we're really bad at silence. Um, but both of these, I think, are, uh, are necessities for understanding and hearing what it is that God is desiring of us. He, uh, he quotes a guy in here named uh, Francois Fenelon, clearly French. Uh, and he says this, Be silent and listen to God. Let your heart be in such a state of preparation that his spirit may impress upon you such virtues as will please him. Let all within you listen to him. This silence of all outward and earthly affection and of human thoughts within us is essential if we are to hear his voice. If I could whittle that down to two things. In meditative prayer, we are trying to silence what's happening on the outside. And so it's important that you find a quiet place to do this. And I know for some of you that's really hard because you have a two-year-old who's crying or a five-year-old who needs something from you or maybe you just have a lot going on in life or you have a workplace calling you in the middle of the night saying it's time to come in now. I get it, I do. But finding that quiet place in a routine kind of way is of necessity in trying to hear God's voice. But this quote doesn't just stop there because then there's also the inner voices that you're trying to silence as well, right? It's not just about silencing what's happening out here. If you've ever sat in silence for any period of time, it does not take long for your mind to start producing something. Usually some kind of like, well, it could be any number of things, a list of what you have to do today, what you're going to get at the grocery store later, where your kids have to get off to. Or maybe it's, uh, oh my goodness, I totally forgot I was supposed to uh, call this person. All right, and there's all sorts of things that begin to jump in your mind. Uh, a, a routine practice of meditation finds a way to acknowledge those things and then allow them to pass on through. Learning to be still both within and without. I sent a... a uh, a YouTube video uh, to uh, my prayer group last night, and, um, and I quite liked it. It's a, it's a BBC uh, special on, on meditation at a secular level, and uh, it, it takes uh, fMRI scans of, of people uh, who are practicing meditation, and, uh, and it takes a look at what's happening to their actual physical brain structure. And two remarkable things happen. One, it reduces the size of what's called the amygdala, this part of your brain that centers in on fight or flight. 
It centers in on stress, it centers in on depression, and it shrinks it. And so as you meditate regularly, and as you spend that time in silence, and as Christians, as you spend that time in the presence of God, we find ourselves less fearful, less stressful, perhaps even less depressed, and we find that we are able to trust that even if I'm hit with the worst things today, that I have a God who is in control and that God's will be done means that I am in the midst of the best place I can be. And then the other thing it does is it grows this other part of your brain. It's called the posterior cingulate cortex, part of the brain I had not heard of. Uh, and uh, this helps with your wandering mind. That very thing that I described, when you get silent and all the things pop in, right? And it's these things that lead to stress or to worry, these things that lead you to ruminate on what that person said earlier in the day and you just can't let go of it, right? Well, there's like science now behind the fact that just sitting in silence in a meditative state where we are sitting with our creator, seeking God's voice, can actually lead us into a place where we're doing that less. And in so doing, we're able to be present in the world with other people in a way that we perhaps before could not. There's a lot that I could have said about knowing God's will. I could have pointed you to uh, reading more scripture, which is really important too. I could have pointed you to um, finding friends uh, and being part of a community, which is really important too, because these people can speak God's will and God's word into your life, and you should. But we're in the middle of uh, a season where I'm imploring you to begin a prayer life. And if your prayer life is still kind of on the rocks, I want to say this morning that this is a great day to begin something anew, something fresh, a practice of some kind. It doesn't have to be immediately in the morning, though, frankly, I find that to be a great time of day. Maybe it's at lunch. Maybe it's in the evening. Maybe it's on your bus ride home from work. I don't know, but if we can carve out that time, and if we can find ourselves uh, praying for others, yes. I'm all about the prayer list, by the way. I, th I think it's really important, and we'll come to this at another point, but praying for other people. But sometimes, if we can just sit in the presence of God, we can learn to hear his voice in ways that we had not been able before. To come back to the book just a minute, uh, Richard Foster suggests that when we are seeking to know God's voice, there are three pieces that are worth paying attention to. The quality of it, spirit of it, and the content of it. And I will keep this ever so brief. The quality of God's voice is one that has a weight or an impact on our consciousness. 
It is a steady, calm force, a divine authority, or as E. Stanley Jones says, the inner voice of God does not argue, it does not try to convince you, it just speaks and is self-authenticating. I quite like that. The spirit voice is one that is exalted peacefulness, it is confidence, it is joy, it is sweet it is reasonableness, it is goodwill, it is, in short, he says, the spirit of Jesus. And then the content. The content of God's voice is never at odds with God's revealed truth and the enduring principles of scripture. And it is important that we understand the entire tenor of scripture, he says, that is the entire story of God's redemption process if we are to understand the content of God's will on our lives. Sometimes it's quite simple what God is asking of us. It might just be calling somebody and saying, hey, I was thinking about you. I hope you're doing well. I'm not sure why God laid you on my heart, but he did. I've been asking you for stories, by the way, of prayer, and I've gotten a few, but I'd love more, and I'll relay one. It's our friend Brian Jones. I think we all know Brian. Brian's the head of uh, the North Star Network, and he emailed me a nice lengthy story about a friend who did just what I described. Brian was having a terrible day, and out of the blue, he was the recipient of somebody who listened to God's still voice in his life. And the gentleman calls Brian and says, Brian, I don't know why, but God's got you on my heart this morning. And Brian said, that meant the world to him. It's a very simple thing. It was just a simple matter of listening to God's small, still voice and being obedient to it. What is God calling you to this morning? Is God calling you to a life of prayer? Is God calling you to something more? How are you being called into the restoration process that is described in our scriptures from front to back? Let us pray together. Holy Spirit, We ask that you come and inhabit this place today. We ask that you inhabit our hearts and that you begin to do your mighty work in there. God, as we seek you on a regular basis, we find that our eyes are open to things that we had not seen before, to people we hadn't seen before, to your movement in the world in ways we hadn't seen before. As we open our spirits to you, we find that they too are transformed. As we open our minds to you, we find that they are transformed into the mind of Christ. God, you are trying to transform us from within. Today, we come to you and we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.